This morning, I want to do a kind of vanilla message on a subject that's really, I think, highly practical and not deeply theological, but will be helpful to you on the subject of contentment. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13, and the theme of this passage is contentment, which is a virtue that really is hardly esteemed at all in our culture today. In fact, you might say our culture right now, is hostile to the very idea of contentment. In the worlds of sports and business, if you are contented, you might even be criticized as someone who isn't ambitious enough or hungry enough or feisty enough uh, to be an asset to your company or your team. And it sometimes seems, doesn't it, as if the entire goal of the advertising industry is to not to sell products but to foment discontent by stimulating our desires for things that we cannot afford and and don't really need by inflaming appetites that can't possibly be gratified righteously, by appealing to lusts that ought to be suppressed rather than cultivated and encouraged. And so the world is constantly screaming at us that we should not be content with our lives and our possessions. Contentment is is not an easy thing, frankly, to cultivate in a culture such as the one in which we live. You've noticed, I'm certain, that the the main language of political discourse in America is grousing and complaining. And you can hear it nonstop from both the left and the right on drive-time talk show radio, which I've learned to turn off. I don't listen to it anymore. Because whether you're one of the poor and disenfranchised or a member of the rich and privileged, class, the people who claim to speak for you are not happy with the way things are going. They're displeased that you're not getting your fair share of benefits. They're convinced that you're being forced to bear more than your share of society's economic burden, and they're certain that uh, whatever government policies are in place are going to make your lot in life worse rather than better. And the truth is, they're probably right about that, but... Discontent has become sort of fodder for comedy and other forms of entertainment. Have you ever thought about how many popular songs are just drawn-out complaints or ballads of dissatisfaction, you know? I can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) There's even a song titled, Glad to be Unhappy. And we have multiple musical genres for songs of complaint. You got protest songs, angry rap, sad ballads, and the blues. It's not a criticism of any style, but it should be clear from the kinds of songs that we enjoy and the sheer number of songs like that, that our culture is oversaturated with discontent. And not to mention comedy. Comedy has taken a very hard edge since the 1960s, and it's not just because It's partly because, but not entirely because bad language and lascivious subject matter have, you know, sort of taken over the the entertainment industry. That's part of the problem, but it's not the whole problem. The one theme that runs through most forms of entertainment and especially comedy routines is this relentless spirit of discontent and complaining and self-pity. I think it's practically an occupational requirement these days for every stand-up comedian to have a routine about all the little insignificant things that make him completely unhappy. And can I be candid? Even the evangelical community is overdosed on discontent. It's as if we look for things to complain about. You know, my church isn't big enough, or it's too big, or we're not cool and relevant enough, or, or the music isn't to my liking, or the people aren't friendly enough, or whatever. And yet, imagine, imagine if you could go back to Philippi in the first century and just take with you a random dozen members from our church who are accustomed to our culture and and let's encounter a dozen members from Philippi who are accustomed to their culture, and we'll sometime, somehow transport all these people through time to meet each other and bring them, let's bring the Philippians here for 12 hours. That would be a good experiment. Show them 
all of the convenience, the, the, the household appliances, the modes of travel and communication that we take for granted and let them see our iPads and our smartphones and show them the abundance of our food and the relative wealth of even the, the poorest small church pastor, the openness with which our churches are, are usually permitted to worship and to preach, and let them see that not only the the Word of God, but also volumes and volumes of Bible study aids are readily available to us, and not just in hard copy formats, but you can literally carry a large library of biblical resources around on your phone. Now, imagine if you had to explain to that simple first century believer why we find it so hard to be content with what we have. Words would fail, wouldn't they? And I'll confess to you, I do my fair share of grousing. Darlene made me say this. She made me admit this. Especially when I'm, I'm driving, you know. And it drives Darlene crazy to, to hear what I, I mutter under my breath about other drivers. You know, they drive too slow or they drive too fast or, or they're too risky or they're too hesitant or they slow me down or they're too impatient to get around me. And you know how it is. No matter what they do, you hate it right? At least I do. California drivers. And for me, one of the hardest places to avoid being a complainer is when I'm seated behind the wheel, except for when I'm seated in the passenger seat and Darlene's driving. (laughs) She didn't make me say that, but I had to get it in there. And those are all just petty things, but I'll admit to you, they bring out a spirit of discontent in me that Darlene keeps telling me is not healthy. And this is really my point. Nothing is more natural for us than discontent, and nothing comes more spontaneously from our lips than complaining. I was there for the birth of all three of my sons, and every one of them came into this world complaining loudly. And some of us never do get over that tendency. Contentment, even when we have it, seems short-lived and slippery. And you know all about this, I'm sure, from your own bitter experience. If you're like me, when things start to go well, I get worried about what's about to happen that's bad. You know, and you know this from childhood. Maybe there may have been something you wanted badly, some plaything or some item of clothing and you daydreamed about it and you felt that if you could just get that one thing, your life would be complete and you would never want anything so badly again. But then finally, when the day came and you got that thing that you wished for, maybe it came as a Christmas gift or, or you purchased this longed for item after months of saving your allowance or whatever, when your wish was finally realized, it was nowhere near as satisfying as you thought it would be. And wealth and material things don't get any more satisfying the older you get or or the more you accumulate. And that's why people who can afford whatever they want keep getting new cars, sometimes every six months or so. We can't get no satisfaction. Moth and rust destroy and thieves break in to steal whatever pleasures we derive from material things or earthly fame, or worldly power, or any of the treasures of this life, they're all fleeting, and that is the common experience of all of us. And yet, discontent is no minor transgression. A lack of true contentment is the seedbed in which sins like covetousness and anger and hatred and a host of other grosser evils are bred and cultivated. Think about it, the devil's very first temptation of Eve purposely invoked a feeling of discontent in her by suggesting that, you know, all the trees in the Garden of Eden were not really food enough as long as God placed a restriction on that one forbidden fruit. And then the devil questioned the truthfulness of God's commandment. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the devil told her, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, he's saying God is holding back from you something that is better than what he's actually given you. Don't be content with such things as you have. Pursue that which God has forbidden as well. 
And so doubt, married with discontent, was the only temptation Satan needed to unleash an entire universe of evil and sorrow and suffering and shame and guilt. All of it came from Eve's discontent. So discontent is no minor thing. And the passage we're going to be looking at in this hour is maybe the definitive passage on the subject of contentment and how the saints can expect to acquire it, given that dissatisfaction is natural tendency of all of us, knowing that in our fallen state, we are thoroughly corrupted with sinful desires and covetous hearts and evil appetites and and deeply sensing our utter inadequacy when it comes to being truly contented, how can we come by this virtue of contentment? How can we be contented people? And let's not forget, the Apostle Paul very humbly confesses in Romans 7 that if he has a besetting sin, it's the sin of covetousness, evil desire, illicit lust. Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet, but he says, sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, worked out in me coveting of every kind. The covetousness he's thinking of there might include everything from sexual lust or gluttonous cravings to an inordinate desire for material advantages or or a constant craving for creature comforts. And all of that, all of that is rooted in discontent and all of it begets more and more discontent and it also breeds more and more sin. So we're not to imagine that contentment came naturally to Paul or that he was somehow specially endowed with a spiritual gift or a supernatural ability that made satisfaction and serenity easy virtues for Paul to attain. I don't think that's the case. He is talking about something here that we know he personally struggled with. Contentment was just as foreign to the Apostle Paul as it is to you and me. And so he writes this epistle to the Philippians while he is literally being held in shackles under the watchful eye of Roman soldiers in the city of Rome. Chapter 1, verse 13, he refers to his imprisonment with chains and to the imperial guards who were watching his jail, watching him in the cell. And in chapter 4, verse 22, he sends greetings from the saints who are members of Caesar's household. So he's clearly being held in prison in Rome as he writes. And according to Acts 28, verse 16, during this point in his life, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So in other words, he's not at this point in the Mamertine dungeon in in a hole in the rock. He is actually being kept under house arrest, chained literally to a Roman soldier, handcuffed to the guy, actually with probably leg chains, and under the rules of Roman jurisprudence, Acts 28, 30, 30 and 31 says, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. So this wasn't like today's prisons where, you know, room and board are provided at taxpayer expense. While Paul was being held in Roman custody, he was required to pay his own rent. He was awaiting trial in the, in the court of Caesar. And this was apparently sometime between the years A.D. 60 and 63. You can narrow it down that closely. So we know precisely who Caesar was. From the years 54 to 68, the emperor of Rome was Nero, a ruthless man who tolerated no hint of subversion, no disloyalty or rebellion to the established norms of Roman culture, which included religious paganism. He wasn't tolerant of anyone who departed from that. And so Paul faced the very real possibility that he might die for his faith at any time. In fact, a final decision on his fate, as he writes this, was imminent. And so when Paul famously says in Philippians 1, verse 20, that Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, but to live is Christ and to die is gain, he was actually facing a looming court date with Caesar who would rule on his case one way or the other. And in chapter 2... Paul says the final outcome of this case was going to be decided very soon. He says in verse 23, I hope to send Timothy immediately 
as soon as I evaluate my own circumstances. So he's hoping for a favorable ruling because, verse 24, I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly, he says to them. But given Nero's cruel and capricious tendencies, there was a very real possibility that Paul might suffer martyrdom. Chapter 2, verse 17, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And in fact, Paul says he was kind of in a quandary knowing which outcome to wish for. Chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what I will choose. But I'm hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now, ultimately we know at the end of Paul's, the actual end of Paul's life, he would be called upon by Christ to make that supreme sacrifice. But according to the closing verses of the book of Acts, this first long imprisonment, at the time he's writing this epistle, This imprisonment, which begun, as Luke describes it in Acts 21, verse 30, with Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, and he was transported all that way to Rome, this imprisonment finally ended after those two years of house arrest in Rome. Paul was given just a few more years of freedom, four or five years at the most, and he had those few years to minister openly before he was ultimately brought to Rome a second time, and this time he was put to death for his testimony. So this is the setting of Philippians. Paul is nearing the end of that first imprisonment, which was the culmination of a very long ordeal in which he'd been shipwrecked and everything else by the chronology of Luke's account. It has now been nearly five years since Paul was arrested under false pretenses in Jerusalem. Jewish leaders, you know, had seen Paul in the city proper with Trophimus, who was a Gentile. And Acts 21-29 says that when they later saw Paul in the temple, they wrongly supposed that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple. And so they drummed up a mob... Luke says, all the city was stirred and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. They beat him nearly to death. He was arrested. He was repeatedly put on trial with an ascending levels of uh, Roman authorities. And finally, he was shipped off to Rome to have a hearing with Caesar himself. And Paul was, you know, transported by prison ship across the Mediterranean during what was really the worst time of the year. He suffered shipwrecked. He was dragged in chains from Malta to Sicily to Calabria. Calabria, that's the toe of the Italian boot. And then he was taken by ship to the Bay of Naples and brought from there via the Appian Way to Rome. So he has now been nearly two years confined in Rome in a house or cottage somewhere there, forced to live there at his own expense, but chained constantly to Roman soldiers. So virtually everything about his life and circumstances for years had been beset with obstacles and hardships and constraints and hazards and difficulties of every kind. We know he suffered loneliness. Friends and fellow workers abandoned him like rats deserting a sinking ship. He was deprived of most of the means of fellowship and study. And according to Philippians 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul was actually within the church, despised as, and seen as a troublemaker and a liability, or regarded sometimes as a rival by some in the area who went around preaching the gospel. And Paul suggests that they were so driven by their hatred of him that some of them were preaching insincerely out of spite, not that they really wanted to work for the furtherance of the gospel, but because they hoped to add to Paul's afflictions. And yet Paul testifies to the Philippians that he is perfectly contented. And, And I notice this very carefully. Paul is not attempting to suggest that he's an easily satisfied or naturally contented person. That's not his point. That would contradict what he said in Romans 7. 
But he expressly says that contentment is something he has learned through his trials. Philippians 4, verse 11. You, I hope you're at Philippians 4 by now. I'll try to stay there for the most part. Verse 11. I have learned, verse 12 again, I know, and again, I also know. Why, Paul? Because I have learned. Or if you're reading the King James Version, he says, I was instructed. I am instructed. He uses an expression that's actually borrowed from the mystery religions, suggesting that this is a secret he has been initiated into, this secret knowledge of how to be content. And he's more or less confessing again that It's not his native tendency to be contented, but he's gained this knowledge. He has learned contentment. It's a strength he has come to understand and master through his time of tribulation in the the school of hard knocks. He has gained this quality through a process of training and indoctrination and discipline. This is not a grace that was given to him in full-blown fashion, ripe and mature with, you know, immediate effect. He suddenly became contented. This is something he learned over time. So bear that in mind as I read the text because I think actually that's the main point Paul is making. So here's our passage, verses 10 through 13 of Philippians 4. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. And in any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, by the way, this passage is the culmination and the key text of the entire epistle of Philippians. This, is, this ties the entire epistle together. And it reflects one of Paul's main reasons for writing to the Philippian church in the first place. This epistle is a thank you note for gifts, financial gifts, that they had sent to Paul, and this is the section where he expresses to them his gratitude. And furthermore, every spiritual lesson contained in this entire epistle is ultimately brought together in this section, and it's either exemplified or expanded upon or accented or or made more practical, and then it is sealed with the promise of Christ's enabling strength which Paul mentions, of course, in verse 13. And in the course of thanking the Philippians, Paul not only declares his own complete contentment, he expounds on his gratitude in a way that shows us, in very practical terms, how you and I can attain the same kind of contentment. This is the chief practical value of this passage. Paul basically outlines the instruments of of instruction whereby he learned to be content. How was he instructed in this? What taught him? He's going to tell us. There are four instruments which were used to give him this instruction. The Lord's people, the Lord's providence, the Lord's promise, and the Lord's power. And so there they are neatly alliterated for you. We'll work our way through this passage using that as our outlines. If you didn't get all four Just keep your notes handy because we're going to look at them one at a time. Here are four instruments of instruction that can help us master the art of contentment. First, the Lord's people. Now, Paul and the Philippians had always had an especially close relationship. Most of you will remember the circumstances under which this church was founded. Paul was the founder. And the story of this church's founding is described for us by Luke in Acts 16. In Acts 16, 12, he says Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And Paul and his missionary team went there in response to a vision Paul received through a dream in which a Macedonian man appeared to him, verse 9, and said, come over to Macedonia and help us. Again, that's Acts 16. So this was the first entry of the gospel into Europe. And the Philippian church was the first church ever on European soil. And by the way, this is also the exact point in the book of Acts 
where Luke starts using first-person pronouns. So evidently, Luke joined up with Paul in Troas just before Paul went to Macedonia. So from this point on, Luke is with Paul. But the founding of this church was fraught with difficulties and disasters. There was apparently not enough of a Jewish community in Philippi to sustain a synagogue, which means there were fewer than 10 Jewish men, because that's what was required for a quorum. So in lieu of going to the local synagogue, which is what Paul usually did when he entered the city for the first time, he found a prayer meeting by the riverside and went to preach to the group that was gathered there to pray, and most of them were women. Lydia is the first convert mentioned in Luke's record of how that church started. But there was also a slave girl there, demon-possessed, who, Luke says, followed Paul and his team around, Acts 16, verse 17, crying out, saying, these men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, she's right, isn't she? What she says is true enough, but Paul did not want this demonic soothsayer He didn't want anybody to think she was in league with him. And besides, as Spurgeon has said, in the mouth of a demon, even the truth is a blasphemy. You remember that Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. A devil will tell the truth and he'll blend it with a lie the next minute. So Paul cast this demon out before it had a chance to sully the truth with lies. And so he freed her from this demon. And that cost the owners of this slave girl their livelihood because she, now that she's not demon-possessed, she wouldn't go into a trance and prophesy anymore. And so they, these owners of this slave girl drummed up false charges against Paul and Silas and had them thrown into prison. You know this story. There was an earthquake and the city jailer was converted. And when the magistrates realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, they decided they didn't want him in their prison. And so they came and personally apologized to him. And that's how the church at Philippi first got started. The believers in Philippi maintained then a close relationship with Paul from then on. They were perhaps closer to him than any other church. They supported him in a unique and generous way. Several times in the early years, they had sent him financial support, and he reminds them of that in our chapter. Look at Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So they were supporting him financially, And they followed his career from that point on. And so this church seems to have been founded around A.D. 51 or 52 at the latest. This epistle pertains to events that happened around A.D. 62 or 63. So about a decade has passed since the Philippians were converted under Paul's ministry. And so for 10 years, about, they had prayed for him, they had supported him financially, they had maintained their relationship with him as their spiritual father, and it's no wonder, they owed him everything, spiritually speaking, and I think they felt that debt deeply. It's clear that their spiritual and financial partnership, together with their friendship and their prayer support, meant everything to Paul. He treasured these people. They helped bear his burdens, and Paul was deeply grateful to them. Philippians 4.14, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. When everybody else abandoned him, they continued to pray for him and encourage him. Or as the ESV has that text, it was kind of you, he says, to share my trouble. So they even willingly took on themselves some of the troubles that came with supporting a man of Paul's reputation. But then somewhere along the line, they stopped giving. Why and for how long, we don't know. But the language suggests it had been a significant time since Paul had heard anything from them. Verse 10, now at last you have revived thinking about me. It's like, finally, it's clear that Paul had wondered what became of their kindness and care for him. So at some late point during Paul's house arrest in Rome, they sent a messenger. 
Epaphroditus with a package of gifts for Paul. Verse 18, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I've been filled, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And that's why Paul is writing to them. That's what motivates him to write. He is sending them thanks back through Epaphroditus. He wants them to know that he has learned, in part because of them, the Lord's people, he has learned to be content. And notice that in spite of that long period of unexplained silence, again, we don't know how long it was. I'm suspicious that it was probably at least spanned the entire two years that Paul had spent in house arrest in Rome, because it was a significant amount of time. But in spite of that, Paul overflows with thanksgiving. You have revived thinking about me, verse 10. So he uses a word, you've revived thinking about me. It evokes the idea of a barren tree that finally buds at springtime. The idea is your concern for me might have appeared to die, but he says, I know your love for me was never dead. It was just waiting to burst forth in due time. I might have wondered once, Paul says, but... Now I know, indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. That's how he says it. What does that mean, you lacked opportunity? It's not clear why they lacked an opportunity to help Paul. He might be acknowledging that they didn't have the financial means to send him money, or it might have been the case that no messenger was available or no safe and suitable form of transport was available to send a mission like that to Rome to help Paul. Whatever the case, Paul assures them that he loves them and he knows they love him, and that knowledge, he says to him, is more important than the gift itself. Notice that he recognizes and expresses gratitude for their personal concern, verse 10. And he doesn't actually mention the gift they sent until verse 18, which that's really at the tail end of his expression of thanks. The gift here is not the most important thing. It's the last thing he mentions. Now, some men, maybe I would be included in this, don't tell anybody I admitted that, but some men might be tempted to complain about the neglect and uncertainty that he felt during such a long period of silence. But the fact is, Paul had truly learned to be content, satisfied even more by the knowledge of the Philippians' love for him than he was with whatever financial gift they sent him. So this is a very touching and tactful and classy way of saying thanks to them. And notice, what he's doing here is modeling for them the very attitudes that he has already urged them to adopt. Charity, unity towards one another, the mind of Christ who humbled himself, and above all, a spirit of joy and rejoicing, which is, that's the whole theme of the Philippians epistle. And in 2.14, chapter 2, verse 14, he told them, do all things without grumbling or questioning, which is exactly what he does as he deals with this touchy subject of their long silence. He doesn't grumble about it. He doesn't even ask them about it. He's just glad it's over. Earlier in our chapter, verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So he's doing that. And verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right and pure and lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, consider these things. He's doing that too. He's spurning anxiety and reveling in the peace of God, highlighting the blessings of grace that he shares in common with all the Lord's people. He's thinking on the good things. How could a man in that state of mind not be contented, right? And that's one of the keys to contentment for you and me as well. Learn to enjoy the things of God with the people of God. And verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is the very definition of true contentment. But there's more. Not only were the Lord's people an uh, an instrument of uh, instruction through whom Paul learned to be content. Here's instrument number two, the Lord's providence. Verse 11, 
Not that I speak from want. In other words, Paul says, I'm I'm grateful for your concern, but it's not because I'm destitute and desperate. God is the one who providentially supplies my needs. And in the same way, verse 19, my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so he says, don't don't interpret, this is the subtext. He's kind of saying, don't interpret my overflowing thankfulness to you as any kind of grievance against God's kindness to me. I'm not complaining about the treatment I've received from the hand of divine providence. And he goes on, verses 11 and 12, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. He's saying, Providence has taught me to be satisfied no matter what. And notice there are three pairs of opposite extremes that he gives here. Paul is content whether he is brought low, meaning humbled and disgraced and and degraded, or whether he's basking in prosperity and fame. I know how to be abased and I know how to be abound. In fact, the New American Standard Bible uses the word prosperity, verse 12. I know how to live in prosperity. The legacy version actually is better here. I know how to live in abundance, he says. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. And all you have to do is remember Paul's situation. And you know, he's not talking here when he, the word prosperity isn't to signify some televangelist's notion of material prosperity. But the gist of Paul's point is, It's not even ultimately about his financial situation. It's about his sense of personal pride. Literally, I might be humbled or I might be exalted, and I could be contented either way. That's that's his point. And the key to understanding this point lies in this second couplet, the one that comes in the middle phrase of verse 12. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. And the contrast there is between feast and famine. He's talking about his need for physical nourishment, food. He had literally at times been deprived of edible sustenance during his imprisonment because not only did he have to pay his own rent, he had to buy his own food. And so he was dependent on gifts to keep himself alive. And then the third pair of terms he uses is a contrast between material comforts and extreme poverty, abundance and need. Whether I have more than enough or less than enough, Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in all of these circumstances. And by the way, that expression, I've referred to it before, I have learned the secret. I mentioned he employs an expression, mimuimai, which was commonly used in mystery religions. Literally, he's saying, I have been initiated into the secret of contentment. Now, of course, and I hardly feel the need to say this, but of course, Paul is not endorsing any form of mystery religion or quasi-Gnostic notion about secret knowledge. He's using an expression here that the Philippians, who knew him well, would clearly understand that by, by using this kind of terminology, he is signifying that contentment is not an easy virtue to master. It's not, as you might be tempted to think a minor or commonplace or or simple virtue, but contentment is advanced holiness. This is accelerated spirituality. This is postgraduate sanctification. This is higher knowledge than all those difficult theological terms I throw at you. A mature sense of contentment This is not the kind of grace that comes prepackaged in some standard dose, like a pill you swallow and you're done with that step of the Christian life. It doesn't happen that way. Contentment is something that you're initiated into and and then you learn and acquire through long discipline and difficult experiences. So it's more like mastering some high art or understanding the details of an arcane mystery like the mystery religion is what he compares it to. More like that than it is like learning to ride a bicycle, which once you've got it, you've got it. And every turn of divine providence is an instrument of training to help us master the art of contentment. Whether we get riches 
or poverty, feast or famine, exaltation or humility, or more likely, at various times, we get all of the above. The purpose of providence in taking us from wealth to want, health to hunger, height to humiliation, the purpose of providence is to teach us contentment by showing us that in Christ we already have all we need. He is our all in all. And by the way, let me confess something to you. I find prosperity and popularity and material abundance, these things are much bigger hindrances to contentment than poverty or humility or plainness or a shortage of resources. It's actually easier to be content. We tend to equate contentment with material things and worldly success because our, our worldly idea of contentment is, is the idea is that we have everything you could possibly want or need, and then you're content. And if you find yourself thinking that way, rebuke your heart. Jesus said, watch out and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of possessions. That's Luke 12, 15. And it's absolutely true. There was an article a few years ago at the Life Magazine website featuring this long list of Hollywood celebrities who at the very height of their success and celebrity and their popularity, they committed suicide. Lots of them. It's amazing how many there have been. Reaching the top of the world's ladder, they find that popularity and riches and success and fame and privilege, these things do not bring contentment. And in utter despair, when they think, I could never be content, they end their own lives. And what a tragedy that is. And it's a reminder of the truth of Jesus' words that not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his his possessions. But on the other hand, everything that we truly need, everything that can really satisfy us, is found only in Christ. And that gets us to point number three. Follow with me. These are the tools whereby we are taught contentment. First, the Lord's people. Second, the Lord's providence. Now third, the Lord's promise. And I'm going to take you just outside of our text for the actual wording of the promise that permeates this whole passage. The section I read stops at verse 13, but look down at verse 19. And my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is the same promise on which Paul's personal contentment was based. He refers to it obliquely in verse 11 when he says, I'm not speaking from want. I don't really lack anything that I need. He wanted, he wanted it made clear he's not someone in need, despite his circumstances. He knew very well that all his actual needs are met with full sufficiency in the grace of God. It's the same grace that was first shown to him on the road to Damascus. It's the same grace he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient. That's the lesson being reinforced for Paul as he describes that. When he removes, he prays, you remember, for the Lord to remove the thorn three times, he prays that. Some messenger from Satan that was harassing him, and Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Christ supplied all his actual need. And in the next verse, then, he says, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and hardships. And trust me, if you can name a list like that and say you're content with it, weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and hardships, if you're really content with that, you probably learned a lot on Twitter, I would guess. And if you really are content with those negative things, You'll be contented no matter what. This is a principle that applies to every Christian in every church in every era. My God will fulfill all your needs, not necessarily your desires, not everything you crave, but what you truly need, he will fulfill according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, which is to say that he has a more than abundant supply and his resources are not going to run out before your needs are met. So learn to trust that promise at all times, and you will, like Paul, master the secret mystery of contentment. So these, one more time, are the 
training tools by which Paul had learned contentment. First, the Lord's people. Second, the Lord's providence. Third, the Lord's promise. And now finally, the Lord's power. And here is Paul's final punctuation to all of the practical instructions he's been giving since the start of this epistle. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And he points us to the Lord's own power as the ultimate answer to every hint of human discontent. Now, Paul was not so foolish as to think he could summon contentment by his own sheer willpower. He knew he didn't have the strength personally to withstand trials and suffer hardship after hardship without a sense of gnawing resentment and discontent. But, and this was perhaps the greatest lesson Paul learned and the most important truth about sanctification that he ever teaches us. Paul did not expect or attempt to achieve holiness solely in his own strength. He knew that in and of himself, he was utterly bereft of true righteousness. He was inclined to evil passions. He was too full of himself. He was too encumbered with fleshly weaknesses in this, to be holy in the sight of God. He tried all that earlier in his life as an unregenerate Pharisee, and that is precisely what his testimony in Philippians 3 is all about. But here's the whole difference between Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Apostle, Philippians 3, verses 9 and 10. Whereas Saul of Tarsus took pride in his own flawed and imperfect achievements, the Apostle Paul said he desired only to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God. Not a righteousness I earn, a righteousness that God bestows on me. And he's talking there about the imputed righteousness that we receive when we are justified. It's a covering. It's the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us. But Paul understood that if we are impotent to concoct a righteousness of our own that's good enough for justification, we can't do that, then there is also no way that we will ever in our own power be able to achieve perfect sanctification. We can't do it. And so whenever Paul talks about sanctification, this is true throughout all of his epistles, whenever he talks about the subject of holiness, sanctification, he stresses the truth of his absolute reliance on the power of Christ as the only means of daily sanctification. Sure, he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I labored more than any of them. He's talking about all the other apostles. I was the hardest working of all, but he says... Very quickly, right away, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. By the grace of God, I am what I am, he says. He says the same thing in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And here in our text, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There is... Perhaps no more confident statement in all of Scripture. And yet, this is not brazen self-confidence. This is confidence in the power of Christ. And by the way, the Greek derivation of the word content in verse 11 is interesting. It's the Greek word autarkes, which literally means self-contained or self-sufficient. But as the context makes perfectly clear... This is not a manifesto for self-esteem or possibility thinking, although verse 13 is often quoted by people who think that way. People quote verse 13 as if this meant, with Jesus' help, you can achieve whatever dream you have for yourself. That's not what this verse means. It's not the idea at all. This is an apostle who wants to do the will of God, and he knows that he's too weak and too sinful to do it, And so he is laying hold of Christ's power in him to do what he knows he cannot do on his own. And the appropriate cross-reference is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And so in the words of Ephesians 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
There's no room for any kind of carnal self-esteem if you understand this principle. Now, let me sum up in a simple statement what this passage is saying about contentment. The reason true contentment is not dependent on external circumstances or life's up and downs or material things or earthly comforts, the reason contentment has nothing to do with those things, real contentment comes from Christ, and it is therefore impervious to earthly troubles, and they are irrelevant to our actual contentment. Authentic contentment, when you break it down and analyze it, is simply a grown-up faith that has come to fruition. Contentment is the same faith by which we first laid hold of Christ, learning to cling to him so that we love his people and trust his providence and believe his promises and lean on his power. You do that and you will cultivate a spirit of contentment that nothing in this world could ever threaten. In the words of verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So real contentment is like laying hold of heaven early. In fact, that's exactly what it is. It's a preview of the settled rest of heaven. By the way, you you might think it's impossible to live in the real world with all its troubles and and get to that point of faith where nothing upsets your contentment. It is impossible for you and me to do in our own power. Yeah, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what that text means. It doesn't mean you can break any athletic record or, or do anything you desire to do with the power of Christ. It means you can do anything God demands of you with his power. And by the way, verse 13 contrasts wonderfully with a statement Jesus makes in John 15, 5, where he says to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing, but you can do all things through him who strengthens you. If the boundaries for all things in both of those texts, uh, whatever you're seeking to accomplish, if the boundaries of that are set by the express commands of God and the righteous example of Christ then there truly is no limit to what you can do through his power if what you're trying to do is righteous. That's the secret to true contentment, and it's not really a complex mystery. Like I said, it's advanced theology. It's it's advanced practical theology, but it's not complex. It's not a mystery. The reason it's so difficult to learn is that it entails the mortification of our worldly lusts and our carnal ambitions, and our selfish pride, and our ungodly attitudes. And is that hard, putting those things to death? Yes, it is a lifelong pursuit, but it isn't impossible. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our hearts, our natural minds are full of covetousness and evil desire dissatisfaction. Teach us contentment. May we learn to be satisfied with Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And may we learn to appreciate the eternal value of the riches that belong to us in glory in Christ Jesus. May we learn to trust you each day to supply all of our needs, and may we be content with that. We pray in the name of Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.